The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Yesterday saw the release of the new film Ammonite. Starring Kate Winslet, it's inspired by the life of the 19th century fossil hunter Mary Anning. So today we'll be talking about the real Mary Anning, her discoveries, her personal relationships, and how she wasn't the only woman working in paleontology at the time. I was joined in the conversation by the archaeologist Rebecca Rag Sykes, who's one of the founders of Trowel Blazers, which highlights the role of women in the earth sciences. Thanks very much for joining me today to talk about the 19th century fossil hunter Mary Anning. So Mary Anning's life is the inspiration for a new film, Ammonite, which many people will have seen the trailer for, starring Kate Winslet. So we thought that this would be a good chance to speak about the real woman and the history that's behind the film. So before we go any further, can you give us a very brief introduction to Mary Anning? Who was she and why is she remembered today? Yeah, hi. Um, Mary Anning um, is actually pretty famous today. Um, <laughs> you might sort of hear that she's a forgotten woman of science and, and all of mm. this, but um, it's not really true. Um, who she really was, she was um, born in 1799. Um, so she's really sort of um, Regency period. You know, she was living at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and she is the subject of um, many different books and accounts because of her work in uh, the the beginnings of the scientific field of paleontology. Um, so that's the study mm-hmm. of um, you know fossil creatures. Um, and her importance is that she was a collector, as in she literally went out and found the fossils um, of some of the first ever um sort of findings of really key species that that were part of the 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 emerging narrative i guess of of the 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 great age of the earth and and the vanished worlds of um, marine reptiles so ichthyosaurs the ones that look a bit like sort of dolphins um and also plesiosaurs um you know the big four flippered uh things so those were the things that she was um, finding alongside other creatures. And, and she really sort of became famous for those finds, although she herself um, came from a poor background. So I'll ask you a bit more, I think, about her career and some of those discoveries later. But can you paint us a picture of Mary Anning's life? So she lived in Lyme Regis, which is on the south coast of England, on the Devon-Dorset border. What was her everyday life there like? Um, well, she was, as I said, she was born in 1799 and she did not come from any kind of sort of wealthy family or even a, a middle class family, although there wasn't sort of that much of a, a middle class at that time. It was really only emerging in economic terms. Um, but she was from quite a large family, really. Um, her father was uh, Richard Anning and her mother was Molly. 
Um, her mother probably had nine or ten um, children, but um, only Mary and her older brother Joseph survived, um, which is a good reflection of, you know, the conditions mm. for people who were less well off um, and also women. Um, the infant mortality was was very high at that time. Um, and her father was a cabinet maker um, and her mother was um, from a, a farming, labouring uh, family. Um, but so although her father, his profession as a cabinet maker, you know, you, you can charge a reasonable amount um, for finely made furniture. It's not a profession that's bringing in good money very regularly. So they were never very rich. Um, and so sort of the, the economic situation that she came from was definitely precarious. And mm. um, her father... Uh, they were from a, a family of um, religious dissenters, nonconformists. Um, and there does seem to be an interest in politics um, and in education in that her father was apparently involved in instigating uh, riots, um, you know, against the price of bread at the time, because there was there was a famine um, in that region um, around that that early period. So you can kind of you get an impression of her as coming from you know, a family who really did not have a lot of money at all, but who were interested in the social conditions um, and may have had a slightly different outlook on life. And Richard, her father, um, did begin collecting fossils um, to sell, um, even while he was a cabinet maker. Mary spent a lot of time scouring the beach around Lyme um, and the cliffs for fossils and then excavating them. What would the process of excavating a fossil look like in the 19th century? Because obviously they didn't have any of the modern technology that paleontologists would rely on these days. When we talk about fossil collecting and excavating, um, this is really more of chance finds, but people were keeping an eye out for them. So at Lyme, um, Lyme Regis, the, the geological deposits are Jurassic um, and they consist of quite soft sediments and so often when there were stormy conditions um or sort of heavy rains and things the cliffs right on the coast there um would slip so there were massive landslides sometimes but regularly during storms and in the winter um you know sediments would would tumble down and in amongst this would be fossils um of many different creatures um at the time you know the sort of the late 18th century, very early 19th century, there was very little understanding of what those fossils actually were. So, you know, what the backbones of, of creatures, they were they were um called vertebraries, you know, for ver um vertebrae. Um and you know, pieces of um other creatures were called like ladies' fingers and things, you know. So they were given names that um didn't really reflect what those creatures were because people didn't know. So Richard and other collectors in the region um, would basically just go down and have a look and see what was falling out of the cliffs um, or walk along the actual beach itself to see if anything had been washed up um, by the tide. So it was really, it was chance, you know, nobody was sort of setting out a, a research dig in the way that we might think of it today. So you mentioned there that nobody was entirely sure what these things emerging from the sediments were. And the term dinosaur, am I right, hadn't been coined yet at this point? Uh, yes, yes. Um, no, the the first um, sort of bones that were found 
from the end of the 18th century onwards, um, they a lot of them were initially called crocodiles. Ah, so did did people at the time have any theories about what what they were? Did they understand that they were creatures from a prehistoric past? Well, the the geological understanding of how old the Earth actually was had been sort of slowly emerging through the um, sort of mid 1700s and onwards um, as people were paying attention to rocks and the fact that if you, you know, depending on where you look, um, there were some key geological sections that were identified around this time where it was clear that there was a massive break in the deposits of the sediments, you know, so you would have horizontal layers and then a break and then above those layers that were tipped up nearly vertically. And geologists at that time were basically recognising that there was no way that those deposits could form if the earth was very recent and if, you know, the same conditions that we witness right now had always been there. There had to have been enormous upheavals to, you know, tilt and turn rocks and and things like this. So the, the notion that the chronology of the earth had to be massively older than biblical chronologies um, was really quite well established, I think, um, in some scientific circles at the beginning of the 19th century. But, you know, more widely, it was a, a massively controversial issue. Um, but mm. I think the the establishment of ideas that there had been entire vanished worlds of other animals that were not around at that time... Um, that was really beginning to only sort of coalesce right at this time when um, Mary Anning was active as a fossil collector. So what do you think it was that set Mary Anning apart as a fossil collector? Why do we remember her rather than, say, her father or other collectors? That's actually a really complex uh, question. Um, And I think it has things to do with you know, the historical context of her own life, but also how her story has been sort of rediscovered through time. So Mary was not the only person collecting fossils in Lyme, um, and neither was her father. So he was there doing stuff. He actually died in 1810 um, when she was only 11 years old. Um, And it was that point at which her sort of destiny was launched um, in that the family, uh, when when he died, they were sent into real, you know, economic dire straits. Um, but Mary gave an account um, of very close to his death or his funeral, um, having been wandering around on the beach, not actually sort of being looked after by her mother, who presumably was, um, you know, in the depths of grief, Um, And she found a fossil. Um, You know, the kids that lived in Lyme were well aware of all these fossils and they would find things. She found a fossil and she had told several different people that a woman fossilist, as they were known, um, saw this fossil that she had and paid her for it half a crown, which was basically a couple of days wages um, for a labourer at that time, which is significant money. Um, So I think at that point it was made obvious to her mother, Molly, um, that the thing that her father, you know, Richard used to do on the side could actually be 
an economic way forward for the whole family. And um, within uh, a year, her older brother Joseph had found um, a massive skull of an ichthyosaur, what they later realised was an ichthyosaur. And then a year after that, that, that skeleton was taken out um, basically under the direction of Mary. She was credited with having the rest of that out. And that was a hugely celebrated um, skeleton. It was sold for a decent amount of money. Um, but I think it's it's the combination of Mary, the lack of a father in, in the family, and the three of them, the mother, Mary, and the brother, having to take that on as a business and really pursue it as their main business. Um, the fact that she... And um, and Joseph found this very unusual, really impressive creature, which attracted a lot of attention um, and sold for good money. Um, and then also, I think, as time went on, um, Mary didn't marry. Um, this was her sole pursuit. This was her sole financial means um, in life and supporting her family. Um, so other people were collecting in Lyme, um, you know, people who were not rich collectors who could just keep the, the fossils for themselves, but people who were selling it. And there was at least one other woman who was involved, but that was with her husband. So I think Mary, over time, really began to stand out. And she she did gain quite significant celebrity during her own lifetime. And it was only really sort of over the the next... I'd say century after her death, that she slowly began to be forgotten, um, you know, more widely and within scientific circles. It was only geologists really that sort of had a had a, a memory of, of her. <laughs> but then from the mid-20th century onwards, she began to sort of be rediscovered again as a figure who was inspiring, especially the fact that she began doing this as a child. Um, and I think that's where this more recent interest has come from, that it's Mary's story as a girl and as a woman mm. um, interested in the fossils, um, but also selling them. And that's her independent business. So I think the the fame that she had shifted through time. Initially, it was for her scientific contributions and, and that she was this great, you know, they called her indefatigable and, you know, that she was this this very persistent collector who worked through terrible weather. But by, you know, t today, she represents something a little bit different and much broader. You mentioned there that she was seen as indefatigable. And she's also been portrayed quite often as prickly, difficult, maybe a bit downtrodden. Is that a fair representation from what we know about her? Do we have any sense from the sources about what she was like as a person, you know, her character and her temperament? Yes, we do. Um, I think Mary Anning had to be a lot of different things to different people. Um, she had many close friends um, and clearly affectionate relationships with people that included, um, you know, other collectors in Lyme. And one of her friends um, is well-known, Elizabeth Philpot, who was better off than Mary and so could keep her own um, fossil collection, didn't have to sell it all. There were other women that she corresponded with. Um, and she was also, though, on really good, friendly terms with some of the key male um, geologists and paleontologists who were active. You know, basically, most people 
active at that time were interested in Lyme because it was a real centre for fossils. And she was there and her and her family were recognised as basically the, the main source for everything of scientific interest coming out of Lyme. So she was extremely well known amongst the scientific community. But she definitely did have friends. She got on very well with um, William Buckland, for example, who was um, one of the key figures of the time. Um, however, other accounts, as you say, sort of describe her as less easy to get on with. She was she was described as being um, masculine, you know, in, in her um, sort of uh, character that may well be to do with the fact that she was a spinster um but she was obviously economically well aware she was a businesswoman um she needed to make money um so she had to be quite firm with people so it might be that it could just be her independence um the fact that she she was out in all weathers um she was re- uh, described as being tanned so that might also be to do with it but um at the same time she um, you know, was called uh, prickly and um, was described as a vinegar woman, even by somebody. <laughs> Which um, that's a bit harsh. Yes, I mean, I th- I think it it may come down to the fact that she, although her interest initially and primarily was for money, um, you know, to support the family. Um, she began to, I think, be aware that she wasn't getting the credit for some of the discoveries that she made. She wasn't always named, for example. Um, And she was was aware of her own knowledge. You know, she wrote a letter um, to a journal sort of disputing the the scientific claims in that based on her own knowledge um, and sort of saying, oh, yes, I've spoken to Agassiz, Louis Agassiz, who was one of these key figures of the day. So she, she was well in that network um, and not afraid to, you know, speak about her own knowledge and speak up. So that might have rubbed some people up the wrong way, even if it came from a man, never mind from a woman. So that may be the origin of of some of the more negative descriptions of her, I think. So do you think that part of that reason why she might have been overlooked was also to do with class as well as gender? It depends what one set thinks about being overlooked. You know, at the time, I don't yeah. think it's fair to say she was overlooked. She was really quite famous. She was in newspapers a lot. Um, you know, people knew her. People wrote about her to each other. Um, so I think at that time, it was it was unthinkable, really, that a woman from, as you say, from her working class background would move in the same circles as the scientific community because the scientific community was virtually all made up of people who were financially independent. You know, they could Mm. spend their time (laughs) fossiling around and, you know, she had to sell her work. So the circles that she was able to move in was very different. Um, But she was respected for where she came from, for her contributions. So I think it was, it was just impossible for her to, to, jump that boundary of of mm. class um and finance whereas in terms of whether she's forgotten or, or she became forgotten later because of that i think it is connected yes because um her name was just not listed as much you know it wasn't always um 
in museum labels and things. And over the 20th century, that probably did result in her legacy um, as a scientific uh, contributor being um, overlooked. And the story became more about her as a girl and her father dying. And, you know, there are so many children's books about her now, um, far more mm. than, than there were biographies. Um, although there is an excellent new uh, biography that's just come out. Ooh, what's that called? Um, it's uh, called The Fossil Woman, A Life of Mary Anning, and it's by Tom Sharp. It came out last year. And although there have been some books about Mary Anning, um, you know, uh, serious um, books, not children's stories, um, this is really, I would say, the definitive account of her. It's extremely detailed. It's really worth reading, full of really um, fascinating, uh, fascinating insights about um, her her life and all of the, the fossils that she found and everything. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think maybe that there's this double-sidedness to her life that she was very independent, um, but aware too of how limited her circumstances were. You know, she was not able to travel to Paris and to attend the salons of Georges Cuvier. If she had been richer, I'm sure she would have been welcome. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's easy to see, isn't it, why she would become a, a children's hero. So the other central character that we meet in Ammonite is um, Charlotte Murchison, who was also a real person. What do we know about her? Well, Charlotte Murchison, I mean, the character in Ammonite mm -hmm. is part of the fiction of Ammonite, mm -hmm. you know, as a story. And the director um, has been really upfront that this is not a, a biopic of Mary Anning. It's not a an attempt to portray, um, you know, her life as a as a you know a mirror image this is actually a story inspired by her really so i think it's important to note that the charlotte murchison in this story is sort of an amalgam of other things and themes so she is not um a reflection of the real charlotte murchison um, and she's much mm -hmm. she's actually less a reflection than than the mary anning in the film is um in reality, Charlotte Murchison was married to Roderick Murchison, who was one of the key figures of the day in uh, geological circles. And he became um, very famous um, for his geological work. 
Charlotte Murchison, um, she was about 10 years older um, in reality uh, than Mary Anning, which is not the case in the film. She's uh, younger in the film. Um, And she was um, from a relatively um, well-to-do family. um, And she has been described as somebody who really had her own independent interest in um in science um and in uh, geology um her husband roderick um was not necessarily actually that interested in science and, and geology and charlotte may have been the one who turned him to- towards that <laughs> uh, for her own interest um and she was active uh, with him. Um, they went uh, down uh, to Lyme, you know, as as I said, many different people did uh, visit Lyme because it was an epicentre for um, sort of the not only interest in fossils, but also along with um, Bath and Brighton, it was one of the places where people who were from, um, you know, the upper layers of society would go to socialize and things like this so it had this other role as well and it did attract people for that reason um but charlotte um is understood to have gone to lyme and actually been trained in fossil collecting um by mary so Mm. there is a direct connection there but in the film ammonite the character probably is also drawing from other relationships that Mary Anning had in terms of friendships um, rather than sexual relations. Because, I mean, we have to say the film Ammonite is clearly um, presenting Mary Anning and and the character um, Charlotte as having um, a sexual relationship. There is no evidence of any sexual relationship (laughs) in Mary's real life. Um, mm-hmm. whether with a man or anybody else, um, there is one hint that she might have had an interest in a fossil collector who was a man who financially supported the Annings. Um, but it's just one tiny thing and there is no evidence at all. What is that tiny hint in the sources that um, she may have had something? Well, when the Annings, uh, sort of in the early 1800s um, up to about 1819, um, although some of the early sales of the fossils did well, they still were quite poor. Um, and they were sort of being supported by the parish and everything. Um, one of the people who went uh, to the area and got to know them and went out collecting because people paid, you know, to go and collect with the Annings because they were the source of um, of all these fossils and then they would pay for anything that was found. And this guy, um, Colonel Birch, um, was one of the people that did this and he just seems to have been a decent person and wanted to help the Annings. Um, but the fact that he organised a sale of his personal fossil collection to financially help them seems maybe to have generated Mm. a little bit of gossip. Um, There is, um, in a letter from a different person, a a Bristol collector of fossils, um, George Humphrey, I think his name is, he says that... There is a an association between them, but it's it's in very couched um, terms. Mm. You know, they say Miss Anning attends him. Is the quote? Um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's very leaves a lot up to speculation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it? you know, it might just be that she was visiting him at Charmouth. You know, it it doesn't mean anything. So that's that's the only piece of evidence. You know, that for any kind of 
possible. And it's it's so tenuous, you know, it's not really there at all. Um, but it is interesting that she did remain single, um, mm. you know, because for women at this time, um, even, you know, women from working class backgrounds, um, even if they had their own independent means of income like Mary did, um, it still would often make sense to marry because you would have a dual income. Um, we don't know why this didn't happen. Um, it could have been that she didn't have any opportunities or actually maybe she didn't want to marry anybody um, because marriage um, meant usually children, which was a really dangerous thing um, for mm. women at this time. Um, so perhaps she just wasn't interested in that um, or, you know, perhaps she did have an interest in women. We don't know that. Um she had close relationships with women, um, as was perfectly normal at the time. Um, and the only hint that there may have been any kind of more than affection, again, is very tenuous mm. stuff. Um, she was friends with a, a girl, uh, Frances Bell, who was about 14 when she came to Lyme. Um, and Mary was a bit older and she came to Lyme to recuperate. She was ill. Um, this, you know, part of the whole sort of the seaside and, and health and everything that was big at the time. Um, and she met Mary, they went fossiling, they clearly formed a friendship. And when she went back to London, to her home, um, she took um, an Ammonite with her and she wrote in her own journal about Mary Anning. And Frances actually died, uh, I think, when she was 15, um, very young. And we know all this because there was an account written about her um, very soon by um, by a close friend, and it includes quotations that you know supposed quotations from her journal in this book that do discuss Mary Anning and how close they were and that they wrote and all of this. So there is a young woman there who had a close relationship, and you know, there's there's a literal Ammonite <laughs> as a souvenir, <laughs> but there's no hint of you know it's not an improprietous relationship. It's a it's a a young woman who came to light. Um, there is another woman who was also younger than Mary, who she was friends with, who went fossiling with her, um, called Anna Maria um, Pinney. Um, and she also had a journal um, and, you know, wrote that uh, various things that Mary told her about her own life. She's one of the sources, actually, for the story um, that Mary told people that a woman bought a fossil of her and that this was her first customer. So that's in her journal. Um and, you know, in her journal, one of the things she wrote is, I really love Mary Anning. I mean, you know, love at that time in the way people write could mean many things. So there's all that. But at the same time, we can't erase the fact that there were women who had sexual relations with each other in the 19th mm. century. That is clear and obvious. You know, people will probably have heard of Gentleman Jack, um, you know, Anne Lister, um, she was a woman up in Yorkshire um, who, again, we only know about this because she kept extremely detailed diaries of her personal relationships, of which there were many. And, you know, if her diaries had not survived, she would just be regarded as a, as a typical heterosexual woman who just didn't marry. Um, so there's no reason why Mary Annie should be regarded as unlikely to have... Mm -hmm. something like that in her life but there is no actual historical evidence for it 
So, so it, you know, it's 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 a long explanation, but it's necessary to kind of lay out um, this because the choice to give a lesbian context to this in the film um, has, you know, ruffled a lot of people's feathers, um, mm. and there's many reasons for that. But in terms of who Charlotte Murchison really was to Mary Anning, she was one of a network of women who Mary, um, you know, knew, corresponded with, um, shared um, her collections and discoveries with. And that included, um, you know, women from the region who were also collectors and women like uh, Charlotte Murchison who were richer, who lived in London, who were much more involved with the, you know, the scientific um I guess, intelligentsia of, of the day. Um, they were right in there having salons, you know, with, with all the people who were publishing the big papers and books. So Charlotte Murchison was sort of in that upper echelon of women that Mary knew and did interact with. Um, so the reality is, is different to the film, but what the film does reflect is that Mary did have, um, you know, friendships, with many different sorts of women. And I think that's really important to to talk about, isn't it? Because I think often Mary Anning is taken almost tokenistically as this was the one woman involved in science in the 19th century. Of course, you run trailblazers, which highlights pioneering women throughout the history of earth sciences. I wonder if you could highlight a couple of them that you think people might be interested to learn about. Yeah, um, yeah, I co-founded Trailblazers um, in 2013 now with uh, three other uh, women, uh, Victoria Herridge. Um, people might have seen uh, Tori on the telly as she does Bone Detectives and um, things like this um, for Channel 4. Um, and also uh, Suzanne Pillar-Birch, who's an archaeologist, and Brenna Hassett, who um, is a fellow uh, archaeologist um, along with myself. Um our initial aim when we founded that was basically, as you say, just to sort of highlight women and say, you know, provide a public facing resource. So we have a website, trailblazers.com, where we have mini biographies of tons of different women, more than 200. Um, but what we really started to see um, as we carried on working on that project was that all the way through from Mary Anning, um, even back in time, um, through to uh, the 20th century was that um, women were connected to each other. There were networks of um, mentoring, of training, of direct collaboration. And this narrative of, of Mary Anning or anybody else as anomalous or like, you know, a lonely figure in a, in a male world, it's not really entirely accurate. And it underplays how many women there were and also how uh, integrated they were with each other. So for Mary Anning, for example, um, as uh, other than Charlotte Murchison, um, William Buckland is one of Mary's uh, friends. Um, William's uh, wife, another Mary, originally Mary Morland, um, she again was interested in fossils and geology in her own right. Um, and she knew uh, Mary Anning um, and wrote letters um that you know we can see all this because of the survival often of letters correspondence um and what we do know is that the vast majority of mary's own correspondence is gone and missing which is a tragedy um mm. but part of this little network with mary buckland um was connected to elizabeth um philpot who was a local um 
person to marry. She lived in Lyme as well. She was uh, sort of, again, one of these economically independent people um, and lived with her two sisters, Margaret and Mary. And she was really into fossil collecting too. And she would go out with Mary Anning all the time. Um, So she was one of the key figures in Mary's life, very local to her. But there's also these other connections. Um, So um, Georges Cuvier, who was one of the key figures in the development of paleontology, French, um, he knew of uh, some of Mary's finds. It's on the basis that Elizabeth Philpott rated Mary, basically, that he began to pay attention to Mary Anning's finds too. Um, And Cuvier um, himself had two daughters, a daughter and a stepdaughter, who he worked with as well on his own scientific research. So there's like a a mini network there. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And then other people who would have known um, of Mary, I think, um, include uh, Ethelred Bennett, who was... um, Uh, quite a bit older um, than Mary. She was born in 1776. Um, She lived in Wiltshire, but she was another collector, um, very well regarded, um, who, although there's no correspondence between them, she undoubtedly knew who Mary Anning was um, because she was celebrated and and mentioned, you know, and everybody knew the fossils were coming from Lyme and from the Anning family. So there is another um, sort of link there. And Mary had her own friends as well um in the area she had another friend um sarah kenaway um who uh she sent letters to about fossils and who herself was interested the the key sort of thing to take away from mary annings i guess sort of position as a node in some of these networks Mm. is that she wasn't just finding fossils and selling them she was interested in the fossils she Um, She was actually quite reasonably educated um, considering her class. She could read and write no problem. And, uh, you know, she would copy out scientific papers. She had her own library um, of of, uh, articles and things that she used. She knew all the scientific terms for anatomy. She had to in order to be able to describe the fossils that she was trying to sell to people. Um, But at the same time, um, she, I think had an independent reputation for her knowledge. Um, She worked with William Buckland on trying to understand um, what these things called bezoars were, which were basically weird stones um, from the the (laughs) stomachs of animals. Um, And so she was interested in in the biology of the animals. But with Elizabeth Philpot, this woman that you know she went fossiling with all the time, they knew each other very well. They would write um, letters um, to different people in their networks. But really interestingly, they also tried to understand the animals together that they were finding. Um, and there's one really wonderful uh, letter that um, Elizabeth wrote to Mary uh, Buckland, um, where they discuss, or she discusses working with Mary Anning on. Um, uh, trying to understand what these fossilized ink sacs were, basically, that they had found. Um, and they realized uh, that they could get out the ink from the fossil, um, extract it, and Elizabeth drew a, uh, a sketch of an ichthyosaur that Mary had found. Um, so there's this sort of, they're, they're experimenting, they're trying to learn about the biology, and then they're recording 
the results of this in a letter to another woman, Mary Buckland. So it's the women's work and the women's contributions and sort of intelligent musings about what's going on. That's happening independently of um, of her interactions with, with the male geologists of the day. Um, my final question to you would be, if you could remind listeners, many of whom will have seen the film Ammonite, um, of one thing about Mary Anning to keep in mind, what do you think it would be? It's quite clearly focusing on her respect for her own independence. Um, and I think that's probably quite a realistic portrayal of her um, and of what drove her. You know, as as we've said, she she didn't marry, which is an interesting thing. You know, perhaps that was through choice. Um, she would always have been very focused on money because they were always in, you know, mm. trouble whether or not they made good sales. And so that that idea of financial independence, but also the fact that she was not afraid to correct people on matters of scientific knowledge that's that's she has an independence of mind this notion that she was a bit prickly again i think that comes back to her confidence and and her valuing her ability to run her own life um yet at the same time there are hints um from a, a book what we call a commonplace book which is kind of like a pinterest you know nowadays like a a journal with scrapbook kind of thing um, where she wrote down lots of quotes and poems and prayers and things like this. Um, you do get a hint in that. We only have the last one from her life, um, from not long before she died, that she was quite lonely as well um, and that there is a sadness there. And she was very ill towards the end of her life. She died from breast cancer quite young. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe that there's this double-sidedness to her life that she was very independent um, but aware too of how limited her circumstances were, you know, she was not able to travel to Paris and to attend the salons of Georges Cuvier. If she had been richer, I'm sure she would have been welcome. That was Rebecca Ragsykes. Rebecca has written a feature about Mary Anning that you can find on our website. Just head to historyextra.com and search for Mary Anning to bring that up. She also wrote a feature on the changing ways that we've seen Neanderthals over time. That's in the April issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on Cleopatra, the Renaissance artist Cellini, the British Empire and Britain's greatest prime ministers. And for more on pioneering women in the earth sciences, make sure you head to trowelblazers.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow when we'll be revealing everything you need to know about the Byzantine Empire.